Hey, everybody. Thanks, as always, for tuning into Front Row Knowles. KJ and I can't thank you enough for continuing to listen as we get into, I think, our 10th year of Front Row Knowles. Also, a special thanks to Seminole Boosters, who continues to support the program. The schedule is out. Quick reminder, your ticket and priority renewal deadline is April 18th. Great schedule, great optimism, great excitement about what's ahead in 2023. None of it's possible without Seminole Boosters. So to those of you who are members, thank you. To those of you who are not, log on to SeminoleBoosters.com to learn more. And now, Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Good day, everybody. Tom Block, Keith Jones. This is Front Row Knowles, and there is a big game or two or three on tap tonight and the next couple nights. And once again, all of Florida State Nation is captivated by Lonnie Alameda and her Seminole softball team, KJ. I think the greatest thing in watching the uh, game against Tennessee was the interview uh, with Holly Rowe and how diplomatic, even in the height of uh, the competition, uh, Coach Alameda uh, found herself being and, and came off with perfect charm. And of course, I'm referring to the illegal pitches that were being called. And uh, appropriately, Holly was asking about them. And more appropriately, uh, Lonnie answered in a, a very, very nice way. It was actually entertaining television. Well, the best part of it, it speaks to their mindset. And every coach talks about this. And athletes do too, but they don't all practice what they preach. It's a lot easier said than done. It's like being a DB, Keith. You got to have a short memory. And what happened last play doesn't matter unless you let it affect the next play. And that's really what she was saying in the moment. She said, if it's a tactic, so what? You know, on to the next pitch. Yeah. And uh, and to to the uh, officiating crew's credit, uh, what were there four, I think four illegal pitch calls uh, in that particular inning, three of them by the third base umpire and one by the first base umpire. So to whatever degree there was a conspiracy, uh, I guess that lends uh, credence to it, but it didn't matter. And that's the beautiful part of that ball game. No, it didn't. And here's what it struck me as. First of all, I don't fault Tennessee because obviously they saw something on tape and they thought maybe there was something there that one time they could pull it out. And, and the way that works is you go to the umpires before a game, you do it in football too. If you have a trick play, you go to the officials and say, and matter of fact, I know Florida state did this last year when they ran that fake punt return, whatever you called it, where they, there was the decoy with Micah Pittman on one side of the field and Pokey Wilson returned. They give the officials a heads up. Hey, we've got this in here. This is how it works. Just know that it's it might you might see it. So I don't doubt that Tennessee picked something up and told the umpires, hey, she she kind of does this. And so the umps were a little more closely tuned in. That's good on Tennessee for spotting that. And I'm assuming this happened. I don't know this for a fact. But the problem is then when the officials, the, the umps decide that they're going to call it every time. This is like calling holding on every play all of a sudden. Uh, it's subjective. It hasn't been called that way at any point during the game. And now we're going to call it every other pitch. Well, and to take that one step further, which was Coach Alameda's point, uh, it had only been called one time the entire season against uh, Florida State. So 
Uh, yeah, it made for an interesting uh, wrinkle, uh, and Florida State was able to overcome it, which, again, repeating is the good news. The, the other thing it reminded me of, and this is an old-school reference, but when George Brett hit his home run against the Yankees, and all of a sudden the Yankees pointed out he had too much pine tar on his bat, and they wiped out – I mean, the Yankees had known that forever – and they made the ump measure it in that moment. And he used home plate to measure it. And lo and behold, because he knows how long home plate is and how much pine tar is allowed. And George Brett went nuts. So it felt like something that Tennessee had in the bag. And then one of their better hitters struck out. And all of a sudden, oh, illegal pitch. And, you know, the next pitch was hit pretty hard up the middle. But Flaherty made the play. So because think about being the freshman pitcher in that situation, Keith. Now it's hard enough you're in that moment in the spotlight in the college world series as a freshman. And now you're having to focus on, I got to make sure that my right foot's coming forward and my left foot does well, what's going to happen. The velocity is going to be lower on the next pitch. And so Tennessee didn't miss squaring it up by very much. Not at all. Not at all. And in fact, I was somewhat unfamiliar with that rule in its, in its totality because there was another illegal pitch called and the offense, the batter has the option. That particular one was a base hit. So it's not a dead ball. It's not like a balk. The ball is still alive. And if the player hits the ball, you can choose whether to take the result of the swing or to go back and have the illegal pitch called and a ball added to the count. Um, it was just interesting. Uh, those are the wrinkles that I think uh, more and more of us, uh, even if we've been around sports for a long time, are learning about the softball, the game of softball, that just, to me, continues to make it very intriguing. And a plethora of pitchers that Lonnie has used this year. So congratulations to the Seminole softball team. We're going to talk in much greater detail about this. Interesting that it's FSU in Oklahoma. Keith, just from a standpoint of being the hunted, which is Oklahoma, and having a 51-game winning streak on your back, on the one hand, you must exude a lot of confidence because you're pretty sure you're going to win every time you take the field. On the other hand, it feels like everything comes to an end at some point, and why not now? Exactly. And, and we're not, we didn't obviously follow Oklahoma all year long, but, you know, one of the things that happens in those winning streaks is they generate their own pressure, additional pressure. And um, it's just going to be interesting. Uh, FSU has played Oklahoma uh, this year. They've met Oklahoma in the College World Series prior. Um, so it's not like it's a new foe from that standpoint. Every team's obviously different. Um, but it's also just interesting, uh, you know, Lonnie played at Oklahoma. Uh, that's her background. And um, she's got, uh, you know, coaching ties uh, to that staff uh, professionally uh, after her 15 years here at FSU. Um, so there are a lot of, a lot of stories, a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes intrigue that goes into this matchup. What do you think about being the hunted versus the the hunter? And it's, it seems I need to call FSU the hunter because this is not like they're the number 57 ranked softball team in America and they happen to make it to the finals. I mean, they're not a David from that standpoint. They're If it wasn't for Oklahoma, they'd be the number one team in the country. Uh, Tommy, I can only answer that in, in the totality of my experiences, both uh, athletically and otherwise. Uh, I have been I have been David most of my life. I don't know. What it, I'm not sure I know what it means to be Goliath, um, but certainly, certainly FSU deserves to be there, but still they're going to be the underdog. 
Well, what about, and this is not that it correlates to, to what we're going to see tonight, but when you and Florida State football were coming of age, Keith, there were two key games, ironically, against Oklahoma at the end of those 79 and 80 seasons where you you fill in the blanks where I'm wrong, but uh, because I was a little young at that point. But I presume that Oklahoma was big favorites in both of those games and Florida State was more the little engine that could or was trying to at that point. Certainly the case after the 79 season, because that was the quote unquote Cinderella season, the undefeated regular season. Uh, the 80 matchup after the 80 season, yeah, technically the 81 Orange Bowl was a great ball game that we just came up short in. And um, so in that one year span, you know, we certainly got closer to knowing what a Goliath might look like. And then uh, right after that, FSU went on a little bit of a downward spiel that didn't get corrected until about 87 or 88 when the dynasty um, came about on the football side. Um, so, so that was that trajectory. Um, we, were, we were a little bit overwhelmed in the first matchup and we went toe to toe in the second and just came up short. So the parallel, not perfect, because two years ago when FSU played Oklahoma in the finals, the, the Seminole softball team was not overwhelmed. They won the first game and they were leading in the second game into the fifth inning. So, I mean, they were that close. They were seven, eight outs away Correct. from winning the second national title. Meanwhile, Oklahoma, I think, has won five in the last 10 years. And I don't know that I've ever – I don't recall a record, not in a sport like this, of 58-1. and one. In, in women's college basketball, UConn had a lot of years where they were 36-0. and 0. Uh, In men's college basketball, there hadn't been an unbeaten team start to finish since 1976 with Indiana. But 58-1 and 1 is about as absurd a record as I've heard for on the diamond. The other absurd record is also owned by Oklahoma, but on their football team, because at one point during the war years, sometime in the 40s, uh, if I'm not mistaken, someone can look it up and correct me if I am, but I believe Florida, uh, Oklahoma football went 47-0 and and 47 consecutive wins. So um, that, that program has enjoyed some consistent success during those time frames, obviously. Keith, congratulations. You got one right, 47 consecutive but it was between 53 and 57 which I guess was also war years but I was uh, as we're recording it's on D-Day my mind went to World War II but uh, actually it was it was in the 50s there and uh, I guess the Korean conflict I don't know those exact years but, but the point being Keith your memory hadn't failed you in this moment how about that how about that all right if we're if we're talking war history it's time to take a break so we'll do that come back with more front row knolls right after this Front Row Knowles is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now back to Tom and Keith. Back on Front Row Knowles as we open up the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. And Bob Ferrante, our Osceola insider, joins us from parts unknown in his vehicle. He is traversing uh, America looking for Florida State stories. I think you just need to stop in the center of our country, Bob, and you can find the biggest Florida State story we have going, and that is uh, FSU softball right now. You know, Jerry's pitch was, let's get an RV, let's get a bunch of uh, writers, a photographer, some fans, and we'll just just make the drive out to OKC, just like the good old days. And I had to remind Jerry that we're, we're not as young as we once were, you know? And the, and the journey's not gotten any shorter, and with bathroom breaks, it's actually gotten longer. Is what it's you're gotten longer. Yes, it has. 
Keith and I talked uh, pretty extensively in the first segment about about what we've seen from this team so far. But the the one question and the way this whole thing is going to be painted for the next three days, if it goes three days, uh, maybe FSU wins it in two. But the way it's going to be painted is that Oklahoma is insurmountable and nobody can beat them, and they're the juggernaut and the giant. And so, what do you think? I think, I mean, they're pretty darn tough, right? They've only lost one game this year, 51 uh, wins in a row. I think that suggests that they're easily the favorite. But if you're looking at the other most complete team out there in the field, Florida State is probably it, a team that does just about everything really well as far as different facets of the game. And I think it's also worth noting, you know, Florida State is very battle-tested. They played Oklahoma, played Oklahoma State, Clemson, Duke, played a ton of national seeds. You know, just getting to this point had to knock off all the SEC schools in their path. You know, that's South Carolina, Georgia, now Tennessee on Monday night. So I think it says something about who you've played to prepare you to get to this point. The bummer is you're in Oklahoma's backyard. You're trying to unseat, you know, Goliath, and you've got to do it twice. It's not just one win. It's twice. That's that's it's it's a tough task. Can it be done? Sure. Are you the underdog? I think definitely, but I don't think that bothers Florida State either. Bob, I think the the physical matchups, which we could spend a lot of time talking about, um, are there. The one that intrigues me, the matchup that intrigues me, however, is the mental part of it. In that FSU has played a different brand of softball all year long, attributable to the losses against Mississippi State a little over a year ago that kept them out of even getting to the, the Super Regionals last year. Might that be the difference in this in this series becomes the question. Yeah, I, I hesitate to say this team is mentally tougher than, say, the 2022 team, just that you've learned from those experiences. You've faced them throughout, not just what happened last May. I think it was the early part of the discussion that they had in the fall when this team returned, it was, okay, we're going to go back and watch those Mississippi State games. We're going to learn from it. We're going to face it directly. I think the mental side of sports and athletics has is, is become huge, and, and Lonnie's embraced it, has hired Ellie Cooper, you know, one of her former players, to be a, a mental conditioning coach. And you know, we're, we're seeing how they've embraced not just the analytics but the mental side of things. You know, when, when Kat Sandercock faces a rain delay, She's not, you know, cussing at the rain and the lightning. She's, she's doing yoga. She's decided, okay, this is how I'm going to approach it. So I, I do think when this team faces adversity, even in games, they can go back to those, those roots, those moments, and, and really be, you know, as, as calm, I think, as possible. And, and that was a tough situation with McKenna Reed, right, on Monday night when she's facing those illegal pitch calls. She has to go back to, okay, what Lonnie has taught her, what Ellie Cooper has taught her, okay, make a um, make an adjustment on the fly in terms of your mechanics. I mean, that's asking a lot. I was asking a lot from a freshman, and she battled through that on the biggest stage. So I think we're seeing those kind of moments. You have to, at some point, you have to say that's that's really really cool. That's what sports is all about: making those in-game adjustments. There's multiple layers to that illegal pitch situation, Bob. One is what you just said: an individual battling through that moment. But there's the bigger context of what Lonnie called a, a tactic in her interview with uh, with Holly Rowe during the game, which is 
making sure that the team doesn't get annoyed, sidetracked, lose focus because now they're ticked off at the Umps or Tennessee or what have you. Uh, what was your what was your general sense on on I guess how FSU handled it and just the way that unfolded and seeing four illegal pitch calls in one inning? Well, I, I thought Holly did a great job of asking the two questions that needed to be asked. She asked it in a very respectful way. I thought Lonnie answered it in a really good way as far as consistency, calling these illegal pitches, if we want to call them legal, illegal, illegal, whatever. You have to be consistent, regular season, postseason. That's a real challenge for the sport. I saw Kaylin Arnold on Twitter. Again, Kaylin pitched at Tennessee and Florida State, and she's even questioning, okay, should we be doing away with these types of rules in that sport? I think that's valuable insight from somebody who's pitched for both programs in both conferences. Um, how Lonnie handled it, I thought was was amusing. I thought there was some perhaps colorful language if you were lip reading her, what she was saying to the umpires. But it sounds like her version of it post game was McKenna was maybe more calm than she was, or or Troy Cameron on on the on the base paths on the on the on the field. So it is cool to again see. She went to McKenna and said, okay, McKenna, can you handle this? Can you do this? This is what needs to be done. I, I think Lonnie needed to apply a little bit of pressure, to apply a little bit of pushback, not just in-game, but to a bigger issue over umpire and consistency. But I thought she did it in as respectful of a way that, that she possibly could have. I enjoyed it. I thought it was the, uh, the show within the show. <laughs> and I think- It was you know, that. It, it, it's a topic that will take center stage, I think, for the next couple nights as this tournament unfolds, but also into the offseason. And that's that's where the coaches and the pitchers and the pitching coaches have to figure out what makes sense long term for the sport and how it's called. But I, I think it, it also may be overshadowed that Florida State is not a home run hitting team, but also hit some home runs and, and really put that game away and put the ball into Kat's hands in the fifth inning where she was able to throw three shutout innings. So, again, it's kind of just showing the complementary pieces of this team, and that's what I think we have to appreciate too. Bob, it's maybe premature to ask this question because she needs to get a championship to, to go with the all-time greats, but but where do you think Kat is right now on the, on the list for, for softball or Florida State athletics? Yeah, at some point you have to say, are, are we – are we one, one A, one B? There's so many great names of, of ladies who have pitched here, you know, from, from Megan King to Kylie Hansen, all the way back to a, a Jessica Vanderlinden. Um, there's just so many through the record books. I, I think what Kat has done maybe this year is impressive as far as the evolution of, of being willing to not be that starter all the time, not be that alpha pitcher but she has 10 saves. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, just that she has embraced that aspect. And I think one of the anecdotes that Holly mentioned on the broadcast was there was some crying over that. There were some tears over, is this right for me? Is this right for us as a team, as a pitcher? And I think a lot of it was Lonnie saying, trust us. You know, we think this is what gets us to the championship series and a chance to win a title. So I, I think it, it's a a non-traditional view of how to pitch in, in, in the sport. But in 2023, you can't doubt it. it. It's worked really, really well for this club. 
and I think Cat will go down as one of the all-time greats here at Florida State. And as a sidebar, as a sidebar for those of us that that have studied baseball all of our lives and not necessarily uh, softball, there is no closer role in softball. Maybe there should be. Maybe one will develop. But you know, we can talk about starting pitching, and we talk about your closer. And when we talk about baseball, we, you know, we treat both of those as pretty high up. But that's not the case in softball because there is no closer. You're just you're like a middle reliever. And for her to to be able to embrace that and come in to perform, I don't think we really appreciate as as, as we should simply because of our ignorance or or, the, or our lack of experience with it. Maybe maybe now we'll have a closer. Hey, we got to we got to go to break, Bob. We'll let you get going. We'll cut you short this week, but appreciate your insight as always. Thank you, sir. All right, guys. Take care. More front row Knowles after this. Be sure to subscribe to the Front Row Knowles podcast and follow at Front Row Knowles on Twitter. Now back to at underscore Tom Block and Twitterless Keith Jones. Yes, you heard us right in the Prime Meridian Bank Studios. Back on Front Row Knowles, thanks to Bob Ferrante who joined us via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline as he always does. Keith, you, you went down the road of softball and baseball and, and sort of some similarities there. This is the way Major League Baseball has gone of late. You know, we're, we're many years removed now from trying to get eight innings or 110 pitches out of your starter and then having a guy close it at the end. The philosophy has definitely changed to whatever, whatever order works to get 27 outs. Uh, in softball, it's, it's 21 and maybe – what Lonnie has done with, with Kat Sandercock this year will change the thinking in general for softball. Well, certainly there's an evolution going on. And, um, you know, I think all of the moves have been positive. You know, way back in the day, if you want to be a historian, you only had four starters for baseball. And now most teams have five. You have a five-day or six-day uh, rotation. Um, you know, back in the, in the day of softball, you had one right-handed pitcher and one left-handed pitcher. And they threw 10 million innings a year. And now there's been, I believe I heard last night that there's been seven different players actually pitch for Florida State at some point during this season. Obviously, you won't use seven in the postseason. But, you know, the the day of having a, a righty and a lefty and nobody else is certainly gone as well. One of the things that softball, I, I enjoy watching the sport of softball, and I think college baseball has got to make some adjustments here in coming years. I mean, they've made changes and tweaks at the major league level, and it's shortened the game significantly without compromising the integrity and still the the loose nature of baseball. And I think college baseball has got to follow suit. But two things that softball does that would be worth considering. The first one would work in, in any sport. And that is there's a limit on how many replay reviews or challenges a coach can make, right? You get two per game per side. Now the umps can, can start some on their own, but when you have two, it makes you think twice in the second inning about whether you want to use one of them on that or not. And the point is the game is shorter because you're not reviewing everything right and then the second thing is and i the pushback from baseball coaches at the college level will come because they're trying to develop more pitchers and you use more pitchers in baseball but there's not a mercy rule in college baseball sometimes there is non-conference but if you're playing a conference game and we are certainly a postseason game i mean fsu beat ohio state 37 to 6 and they couldn't stop the fight in the seventh inning they had to get 27 outs well in college softball 
conference game, postseason game, regular season game, eight run lead after four and a half, five innings, depending on whether you're visitor or home, you just end the game. And that shortens the game. And I like that too. Except one one little thing though, though, Tommy, you're you're going way old school. You're calling it the mercy rule. The mercy rule. Uh, I think what the politically correct term now is run ruled or something like that. But uh, I agree with you. Yeah, let's put that, let's put ourselves out of the mercy of having to deal with you not being able to score runs. Well, I'm using the word mercy because I used to broadcast those midweek games against Stetson when it was 20 to four FSU, and we're in the eighth inning trying to get three outs to get back to Tallahassee. Well, and you and referenced so, the Ohio State game. I was actually broadcasting that game. That game went a little over six hours. Well, hopefully you negotiated your contract per run and per hit for that game. And <laughs> that might explain why you retired from everything else since then. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. Anyway, uh, enjoy the softball tonight and the next couple nights. And we'll see how Florida State, the one thing I know, just with their mindset, they're not going to be intimidated or the moment's not going to be too big for them. They played a tremendously challenging schedule. They've got girls that have a, a women that have a lot of moxie on this team. I mean, they're, they're going to fight and fight hard. And, and that was my, my point of my raising the issue about the mental aspect this you know there's there's two thoughts you know the, the mental toughness uh, that's where you refuse to give in to fatigue uh, you refuse to give in to uh, things not going your way uh, that part is, is uh, you know in all sport but the one thing softball does add to it is is the the calmness and the the ability to be that competitive but not to be hyped up to, to be able to do it in a relaxed fashion. And that's been very intriguing to me as I have watched uh, Coach Alameda over the years and her squads over the years. You know, the, these ladies are, are mentally tough in the traditional way. And then they found a way to enjoy playing the game, you know, so that it's not, it's not drudgery. It's not, it's not uh, you know, something you, you, you have to push yourself through. You, you push, but you're enjoying it. And uh, it's just been fun to watch. Fun to watch, continues to be fun to watch. All right, let's shift gears, Keith. Uh, talk some football. Two of the uh, all-time greats in Florida State history are on the, the ballot, if you will, for the uh, College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, first reaction in seeing these names, and the names are Warwick Dunn and Peter Warwick, if you're not familiar, is – you have to be shocked, uh, and it has to come as a reminder that they're not in the Hall of Fame already. Well, you know, I've had a couple of conversations with people about that. Um, you know, there's the, the law of large numbers. There are 32 professional teams. And so if you talk about the number of players, there's 53 people on a squad. Uh, at the college level, you've got 125 plus or minus. And you've got 85 plus, you know, preferred walk-ons. So yes, you, you can look at that and say, what has taken so long? Uh, on the other hand, uh, one of the things that the NFL Hall of Fame talks about is first ballot inductees. And FSU's had a couple of recent uh, in, uh, in Derek Brooks and uh, Walter Jones. Um, I have no doubt I will be absolutely shocked if both Pete and Warwick are not voted in, I, I will, my, the top of my head will come off if they are not elected in this year. They were that important as players and that important to Florida State. They both won a national championship. 
uh, this should be a slam dunk. But to your point, part of the reason there's such a backlog and it takes so long is what you just said, the math. And the College Hall of Fame takes a similar number, a few more, that to, to, but to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I mean, there's 28, 30 teams historically in the NFL, and they're putting, what, eight or ten people in a year, maybe when you count the uh, – you know, the, the other beyond the ballot and the first team, the others that get in. Um, but in the college hall, they're putting in 15 maybe. I mean, you could make the case that historically they should be putting in 30 a year and it still wouldn't water it down very much. Correct, correct. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a nice affair. I've had the privilege of being a, a, an attendee. Now, I'm certainly not in the Hall of Fame, but being an attendee at the, at the Waldorf and, and haven't been able to hold it there for a while because the uh, building's under uh, reconstruction in renovation, but um, people turn out, people enjoy it. It's prestigious, I can assure you. I mean, Keith, there's there's a lot of names. So first of all, at the wide receiver position, uh, also on the ballot, and, and I'll go with the names that I'll consider uh, lower tier, even though this is a pretty high tier. Justin Blackman from Oklahoma State, uh, Herman Moore from Virginia, Taylor Stubblefield from Purdue, right? But you also have Marvin Harrison from Syracuse on this list, uh, Willie Galt, Larry Fitzgerald, and Randy Moss, who used to be Peter Warwick's roommate for the one year Moss was at FSU when he didn't play. So, I, I mean, Peter Warwick's going to get in, but that's a pretty strong list. It is. Uh, and one of the things that is difficult that the, um, the voters seem to do a reasonably good job with is distinguishing the college career and numbers versus the professional. And, and so you may have someone that has great name recognition if you follow the NFL. Um, Marvin Harrison comes to mind. Uh, I would have to, I'd have to look and do some research. I know nothing about his college statistics and value. And, and you know, so there's a, there's, a, there's a dividing line there that sometimes is overlooked and sometimes is ignored. But one of the things that the National Football Foundation Hall of Fame voters have done, it's a large group, a large group of people, is distinguish between college versus professional. Uh, because, yeah, I, no. you know, you, you, when, Ron, when Ron Simmons went in, you know, Ron, Ron might have played one year in the NFL, you know, but his, his entry into the college football foundation, uh, college Hall of Fame was what he did during his collegiate days, obviously. Well, to, to your point, as I look at that list just on receivers, I, I would argue, and uh, granted, my glasses are garnet and gold, right? But I would argue Peter Warwick and Randy Moss are the two that did the most at the college level there. I mean, Larry Fitzgerald and Marvin Harrison, even Willie Galt, I think of them more for their, their professional career. And, and uh, nobody had the success on the biggest stage that Peter Warwick did, but Randy Moss was putting up Xbox, you know, PlayStation-type numbers when he was at Marshall. He was scoring two touchdowns every week. Uh, I would argue those are the two as the receivers that should go into your point. Um, you know, Warwick, Warwick Dunn, I mean, I mean, there's 10 running backs on that list too, Keith, and they're, you know, DJ Dozier and Toby Gerhardt, Garrison Hurst, Ironhead Hayward, Marshawn Lynch. I mean, that's, that's a who's who as well. And, and one of the things about Warwick Dunn, his, his personality, demeanor, disposition, he was the quiet guy, right? And so even though he won a national title and Florida State did, and he was very instrumental in it as a freshman, he was not the first name that you talked about in 1993. It was Charlie Ward. 
and and there might have been other names before you got to more done. And then Florida State didn't win uh, in '94 and '95, and in '96 they played for a national title, but but Florida won it, and so their their guys were getting more of the pub maybe than the guys that were at Florida State. So it's hard to say this as a Florida State guy. We know he's very appreciated, but I I still wonder if he's a little underappreciated nationally for what he really was when he was at FSU. But see, I think Warwick will benefit. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a hypocrite right here, but I think Warwick's going to benefit, Warwick Gunn will benefit for what he did after he left college, but not on the football field with his foundation, uh, his homes for the holidays and those types of things. I mean, that will, I think that will register in voters' minds and probably their hearts as well. Uh, again, recognizing I sound like a little bit of a hypocrite there, but um, again, both of those guys, because of because we we broadcast their games, we saw them play, we know them um, deserve to be in there. Period. The end. Yeah. Well, I would say this, and and we're not there yet. But basically, if you've got your number up at Doe Campbell Stadium, those guys should be in the College Football Hall of Fame. I mean, for as much success as Florida State had, it's still a pretty small list in Tallahassee at Doke that has their number up there. So it's not like we've got some schools you go to and you've got sixty eight numbers up there. And you're thinking, okay, you're Maryland. All right, congratulations. But I don't know about 68 guys. Florida State's got nine up there, and they're they're all pretty legit. My two, uh, off- maybe it's ten now. Maybe I shorted somebody. My two, my two off the wall comments is every time that comes up, I point up there and say, well, that's my number because Warwick wore number 28, which was my jersey number. Um, and then secondly. And he is also up for candidacy is um, the story I love to tell about Maryland. You mentioned Maryland. Uh, Ralph Friedgen was their head coach. He was named the ACC coach of the year and they fired him. That's just, those are statements of fact. Well, also a statement of fact, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, Keith, but uh, first of all, and we're not uh, being compensated by fame if you've never gone it's in atlanta short trip next time you're there well worth it it's very very interactive great for kids uh if you are listening uh i'd like to take a trip with my son folks so let me know about tickets um i forget where oh here's where i was going with that keith and i don't know the numbers but but notre dame and army each have like 48 guys in the hall of fame or I, i think i mean army army might have four times more guys in the hall of fame than what fsu does fsu currently has 10 so it's skewed a little bit to back in the day, uh, pre-segregation when there were about four teams that were winning every award and uh, Army and Notre Dame were two of them. Well, I, I will just again state this as a statement of fact. Um, Army was playing football um, be- well before Florida State and Army was one of the few institutions that still got some pretty quality kids during the quote unquote war years because they were technically there training for the war. And so they had a couple of built-in advantages, at least up until about plus or minus 1945, 46, 47. Well, I can't claim that I was listening to the radio and listening to the guys uh, from, uh, from Army to the right and to the left. And uh, I, I said pre-segregation. I meant pre-integration, obviously, there, Keith. But anyway, uh, hopefully they both get in. And I don't know how many more will. We've done this exercise before where we've looked at it, Keith. The, the criteria is you have to have been a first-team All-American in like three of the five main. Uh, and, and so there's 
20 other guys from the 90s for FSU that technically are are eligible when you go back to like a a Derek Alexander. I think Corey Sawyer might be on that list. I mean, there's a Clay Shiver is technically eligible. I mean, there's a lot of guys from the 90s. Um, I would think after these two, though, Chris Chris Winky is going to be someone that's going to need to get in there. Yeah, I'd have to sit down and, and have some aids. I would not be able to um, come up with all the names off the top of my head, but um, yeah, it, there are there are a few others, but there are also a plethora of them that are going to be middle of the road, and it may take a while, a long while, in fact. Yeah, the list for FSU currently, by the way, is uh, Marvin Jones, uh, Charlie Ward, Derek Brooks, Bobby Bowden, Ron Sellers, Fred Bolitnikoff. Daryl Moodra, Ron Simmons, Deion Sanders, and Terrell Buckley. So it's a pretty good list, but there's, there's other names that could go in. Yep. All right. We'll take a break, come back, and wrap things up right after this on Front Row Knowles. Be sure to subscribe to the Front Row Knowles podcast and follow at Front Row Knowles on Twitter. Now back to at underscore Tom Block and Twitterless Keith Jones. Yes, you heard us right in the Prime Meridian Bank Studios. minutes to finish up front row Knowles and a reminder that softball is coming up tonight uh, at 8 FSU in Oklahoma. Appreciate Bob Ferrante who is uh, on his way as we speak to uh, Oklahoma City and we recorded uh, our segment with him on uh, Tuesday but uh, safe travels to Bob and you can go to the Osceola for uh, all the latest and the coverage on this FSU softball team. Talking a little football Keith the uh, newcomers several newcomers for Florida State met with the media earlier or, or Wednesday morning and uh, it, it, it's it, it's great that Florida State does this, uh, first of all, but it's it's also and I always talk about recruiting like like it's a birthday or, or Christmas holiday because you finally get to unwrap the present and see it. Now, you're not quite on a game day yet, but it's similar because it's tangible. And that's definitely true with Destin Hill, who we've waited two years to see him arrive. And he's one of the guys that met with the media earlier today. Yeah. How, how do they present themselves? And obviously, uh, these these are new to the program. Uh, uh, the, both the uh, uh, newcomers are divided into the transfer portal folk and the, the incoming freshmen. Um, so you, you you get a feel for how the young guys comport themselves and deal with the media. You obviously expect those uh, older folk uh, to have a little bit of that experience, but that's your first taste. Uh, and obviously how they interact with the media doesn't necessarily mean one iota of how they're going to play on the field. But uh, you, you take in what you have and, and you start formulating your opinions from it. Um, it. It just continues to amaze me. If you want to go to Seminoles.com, you can look at the updated roster. Um, but I, I still old fashioned, Tommy, shoot me if you will. But those duplicate numbers continue to drive me nuts. <laughs> and there are a bunch of them. <laughs> hey, all's fair in love, war, and recruiting, Keith. You know that. I understand. I understand. Yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. Hey, I want to mention, uh, so my son Nolan is at the uh, Leonard Hamilton basketball camp this week. And I saw Stan Jones, I guess it was Sunday when I was uh, when I was checking Nolan in. The camp runs Sunday to Thursday. Uh, I, so I pointed him out, I, but I, I, I put the disclaimer on. I said, Stan, he clearly is not going to be targeted to play the five position in Leonard's system. And and actually, with the size you recruit, he probably can't play four, three, two, or one down the road. And that's without even getting to his skills and ability. Which is to say he's a little vertically challenged like yours truly. Uh, many of us as well. Many of us as well. Uh, uh, 
the, the one thing that I'm glad that, that uh, Nolan's getting the opportunity to participate in is that even in those camps, you get a feel for how Coach Hamilton uh, conducts his team, what he expects of his players. You know, the program gets introduced, and it's not just what happens on the hardwood. And uh, and uh, Nolan will will I think uh, benefit and appreciate from that. Um, that that staff does a really really good job, a really good job. Well, the players are all involved. All the players are here right now, except uh, Baba Miller is competing internationally on the Spanish national team. At, I think it's at the FIFA World Games or something like that. Right. So he'll be back in a few weeks. But other than that, everybody on the roster uh, is here and participating in the camp. So that's a cool benefit uh, there. So uh, Nolan's having fun. Uh, I don't know that a basketball scholarship is in his future, but, you know, he's going to have fun this week anyway. And he, he, he he's at the point now, Keith, where he can beat his old man. I'm not sure what time in your uh, life uh, that happened. You had kids younger than me, so you might have been able to to dominate the home court uh, a little bit longer. Your kids were older before they could take you, but uh, uh, yeah. Tommy, the, 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 the Jones household never owned a basketball. So. <laughs> well, whatever the sport, at some point your kid becomes the master is what that I'm is, saying. That is true. That is true. All right. We are uh, out of time, folks. Thanks for putting up with us again, as always. Enjoy the softball tonight, tomorrow, and uh, hopefully not Friday. The Knowles just take two in a row, and we'll uh, talk about it all again next we'll week. Just, Keith, we'll just one. celebrate it. We'll just celebrate it. All right. He's Keith. I'm Tom. This is Front Row Knowles. <laughs>